Hello and welcome. You are listening to an informed take on current events brought to you by law students and staff of Queen's University Belfast. This is LawPod. Hello and welcome to LawPod. I am Lauren Dempster, a lecturer here at the Law School at Queen's University Belfast. Today I am delighted to be joined by two of my colleagues, Dr Anna Bryson and Professor Kieran McAvoy. We're going to explore today the relationship between apologies and transitional justice. First of all, Kieran, can you tell us a bit about the background to this project? Okay, certainly, Lauren. Uh, so as you know, across the school, we do lots of work on different aspects of, of transitional justice. So prosecutions, truth recovery, reparations, and so forth. This project in, uh, focuses in particular on the role of apologies in dealing with the past. We're working with colleagues, myself and Anna are working with colleagues across two other sectors. So we're focused on the conflict aspects of this. We have colleagues who are working on institutional child abuse, my colleague, uh, Professor uh, Amory McLinden, and we have another colleague, Maurice McCarthy, who's working on, on the apologies and the banking crisis in Ireland. So what we've actually done thus far, we're about three years into this project, is we have been interviewing people who've been involved in the uh, drafting of apologies and the delivery of them, and that, that includes uh, Republicans, loyalists and, and state actors. We've been talking to victims about how apologies from different players in the conflict have been received. Um, we also did a survey of a thousand people across the island of Ireland to get a sense of the general public's view on whether or not apologies matter and we did focus groups with the general public as well. We were relieved on that bit of work because it was quite expensive obviously to do that to find out that the Irish people and people in Northern Ireland, everyone basically accepts that apologies are an important uh, piece of work. And the other thing that Anna and I have been doing outside of the Irish context is we did a piece of work um, last year for the UN Spe Special Rapporteur on Transitional Justice. They became, the UN became aware of the work that we were doing here in Ireland and asked us would we write a report for the UN on the broader role that apologies play in either post-conflict or post-authoritarian context. So that's what we've been up to, both in the Irish context and internationally. Great. Thank you, Kieran. Anna, then, perhaps could you tell us a little bit about what you've found so far to be the key elements of an apology? Sure, Lauren. Well, I think one of the things that we've been looking at is around what makes for an effective and a sincere apology. You know, so you can obviously have apologies that perhaps even do more harm than good. So we've been looking at the factors that might make for a more effective and a more sincere apology. And the kinds of issues that we've been teasing out and questions that we would ask when assessing an apology is, is there a recognition of a hurt delivery? or negligently inflicted and really important to name that, to name the harm that was done. Is there an admission of individual organisation or collective responsibility for that hurt, which again is something that is extremely important for victims to hear? That statement of remorse or regret that is related to the harm or the wrongful act. Oftentimes people want to see a promise of non-recurrence, so they want to know through this apology it's an opportunity to say that this will not happen again. And another element that we found really interesting that we've been teasing out in interviews is around kind of how apologies are delivered. So are they delivered with due respect and dignity to the victimised? And that brings in a whole host of interesting issues around choreography and performance. So we would be looking not just at what is said, but who says it, how it is said, and, and drilling down into that, you know, the tone of voice, the location. And in, in some of the examples that I think later on we'll, we'll allude to, we'll be able to illustrate that in, in a little bit more detail. 
I mean, I think a final thing that I would highlight here, just when summarizing some of the key elements of an effective and sincere apology, is the need to ensure that it is made without reservation, qualification or justification. So I mentioned at the beginning that it's sometimes possible to do more harm than good. And I think we've probably identified some apologies whereby it might have started out quite well with good intentions and the wording's quite good. But if that apology is then kind of, if, if stitched on to that, you have some kind of a, however, we have nothing to apologize for, or, you know, a kind of a statement that nullifies the apology that would certainly take from, you know, the potential to be effective and sincere. And I guess what we we would be saying is that, for example, we know that paramilitary organizations that we've been engaging with, it's not possible for them to apologize for some of their actions that they deem to be legitimate, let's say. But what we would say is that if you are making an apology for something that you recognize as wrong and you want to name that harm and deliver an apology, that would not be the time and the place to engage in a statement of justification for other actions. So a lot of careful thought needs to go into the preparation of a sincere and effective apology, liaison with victims about what they need to hear, what the key sensitivity points are and know to avoid them. And basically, yes, an awful lot of background research and preparation and thinking through what victims need to hear. Great. Thank you, Anna. Anna, could you tell us a bit more about the relationship between the voice of the apologiser and the audience and their ability to hear? Sure, Lauren. So I had mentioned there a moment ago about who delivers the apology and how that can influence its reception. And I suppose just to tease that out a little bit, it was something that really kind of became quite apparent to us in the field research, particularly, I think, in the focus groups that we did with members of the general public. And it was about the effect of the person delivering the apologizer on how it is heard and how it is received. And perhaps to give you an example, in focus groups, I remember in one particularly affluent area of South Dublin, we were debating an apology that Martin, the late Martin McGuinness had issued. And someone in the group was quite candid in saying, really not long into the discussion, he said, listen, can I just be honest here and say that anything that Martin McGuinness says, I am not going to receive well. I hate the Republican movement. And I suppose perhaps as a, a, a different illustration of the same point, in Derry City on the waterside, we were doing interviews where we were discussing as an illustration, the Queen's apology at Dublin Castle and again someone kind of chipped in as a kind of an aside she sort of laughed and said well you know anything the Queen says I'm going to think is just really really lovely and you know it's a throwaway comment but it kind of underlines an important point and it's about hearing and listening and and obviously who delivers the apology can have a real bearing on that. I think perhaps relatedly it's important to note that some apologies are perhaps overheard so I Oftentimes, I think of that Gusty Spence apology, which really resonated with people and the language was very, very important. People, certainly in focus groups, particularly in the South, we were struck by how often people brought that up as a reference point and pinpointed the language of an abject and true remorse. But I think interestingly, somebody did mention that when we were asking later on, we picked up and ran with that in our discussions and asked people about why that apology had resonated so strongly with them. And I remember one guy, I think it was down in Cork, said, do you know what? That apology used to be on Reeling in the Years. Um, so it was played over and over and over again on RTE television and a very popular programme. So, I mean, there's a sort of another point cutting through that about the media and amplification of certain apologies. But for us, um, there are interesting issues there about hearing and listening and audience. And there's some of the things that we've been trying to tease out. 
Can I come in on that point as well, Lauren? Because I, I agree entirely with Anna was saying. And obviously, when Gusty Spence, former commander of the Ulster Volunteer Force, he's speaking on behalf of the combined Loyalist uh, Military Command. So he speaks with significant authority and credibility. And that's one of the other things that we've been looking at is the the who question. Because, so for example, on the in the modern Republican movement, so if Mary Lou Macdonald is president of Sinn Féin, who's never been a member of the IRA, can she speak on behalf of the Republican movement? Can she speak with credibility? If she does, would that be received well by victims? And the other issue in all of that is that uh, we're very conscious when you're engaging with people who are drafting these apologies or delivering them, all of them are involved in a process of managing their own constituency. And so certain people, Martin McGuinness, for example, I think probably because he had been a a prominent member of the IRA previously and then became a Sinn Féin leader and and a a key player in the peace process. But because he had walked the walk, or as one, I think, interview he said, Dana and I, he had worn the boots, he had credibility to stretch his own constituency and to probably go further in some of the apologies that, that he delivered. And he delivered quite a lot of apologies, actually. But he probably could go further both within his own constituency and also because of his background for at least some victims and at least some members of the public, because he was an IRA figure, could speak with with, uh, greater credibility. And I think just as a a short adjoin to that, you can contrast that with what we have sometimes classified as as solo runs, where you have someone coming out and issuing an apology, but perhaps, you know, people asking, does that person speak on behalf of that organisation? Do they have the authority, just as Kieran said, and the legitimacy to deliver that? And that would be another factor that I didn't mention that would weigh in on that judgment around what is a sincere and effective apology. Thank you both. We have touched on a couple of these already, but perhaps, Kieran, you could tell us which for you are the most iconic apologies and why. Yeah, so um, obviously we're, we're apology nerds, so we have tracked, we think, every apology that has been issued by all of the actors, i.e. state, loyalist and Republican, and there are hundreds, hundreds of them. The Republican movement, for example. I mean, it's quite interesting, going back to what Anna was saying earlier about people's capacity to hear. Even until 2015-16, I remember reading an editorial in the Belfast Telegraph saying, oh, uh, well, Martin McGuinness has never apologised. Actually, he's a apologized like 20 30 times but you know sometimes things don't catch things don't stay in the public imagination the iconic ones for me Anna's already talked about Gusty Spence speaking on behalf of the combined loyalist military command his the, the use of his language and um, the language you know of true and abject remorse obviously it's almost like a, a religious tone involved in that one's quite interesting the statement issued by David Cameron in the context of the Savile report so people may recall Savile report is the public inquiry to the events of Bloody Sunday, so the the death of civilians killed by the British Army in Derry. It's a 10-year, very detailed examination of what went on on that day. The victims are all exonerated, and so and, and Cameron's, people may re- recollect, there's a large screen erected outside the Guildhall in Derry. The families are inside. Famously, some family members put their thumbs out through the window because they're they're sequestered away from the press, and but they put their thumbs out i.e. that the report has gone well and then there's a, a choreography involved whereby the families and their supporters have all retraced the, the steps of the original um, civil rights march through Derry and then so Cameron's statement to, to the House of Commons is delivered and again it's uh, you can see in Cameron's I and mean, we've examined it in great detail and actually the original text that he reads from Cameron actually made the apology stronger himself. I think the original drafts that came from the civil servants were uh, more anemic 
than the eventual apology and it is an excellent apology from Cameron but he so he, he's beefed it up essentially but he starts that apology off by saying about how much he um, respects and values the British army so again um, he talks about his own patriotism he believes in the army and so on and so forth so he's obviously managing that constituency but then he goes on to deliver a very effective apology which is directly linked to the truth i.e. the truth that those who were killed were entirely innocent um, and so for for all of those reasons it it works he uses the words wrong it was unjustified and unjustifiable and he says i am deeply sorry so for us because of all of those complex things because of the choreography because it's linked explicitly with truth because there had been some communication back and forward between cameron's office um, and the bloody sunday family so the victims are engaged in that process in to david cameron's credit there's effort put in to ensure that the wrong language isn't used. And this is one thing that we would think is transferable for other contexts, is that if if an organization or an institution are going to go to the bother of apologizing, then part of the preparation work should be reaching out to victims to ensure having made the decision you're going to do this thing, you might as well do it right and don't use language that uh, find out what the, what the families want to hear and don't use language that will make things worse. And that can happen just, uh, you know, a, a miscommunication between the, between the parties. So for me, Cameron's probably sticks out. Anna's already mentioned the Queen's statement of acknowledgement when she visited uh, Dublin Castle, former seat of British rule. And this, again, a choreography is important important because the Queen visits the Garden of Remembrance, which, you know, is a, as, as your listeners may be aware, is the it's a garden in the centre of Dublin, which uh, a monument is there commemorating those who, who gave their life, basically, in, in pursuit of, of Irish freedom. And so, you know, for the Queen, um, who had, of course, lost members of her own family at the hands of the IRA, so this was a very important moment. It's an understated, your um, listeners can Google it and you'll see the wording, it's an understated, but it's very, it's very dignified. And certainly when we interviewed some senior Republicans, they talked about seeing this as an iconic moment, actually, whereby because it's the Queen, because of the dignity and status she carries in communicating this message, because she is the the, the um, titular head of, of, of the British state, senior Republicans we spoke to talked about this as the British acknowledging their role as an actor in the conflict as well, and the Queen being the person perfectly placed to do that. So very well received uh, as a moment in, in Irish history. So probably for me, those two would, would uh, those three would stand out. I don't know, what about you, Anna, any standout for you? Yeah, I think for all the reasons you mentioned, the Queen's apology does stand out as particularly iconic. And I think for me as well, it's about that impact. So you mentioned about how well received it was by senior Republicans. And I remember, you know, elaborating on that, some of them saying that it had a real impact for them in the sense that it enabled them on the back of that apology to stretch their constituency. So it's creating that space for political generosity. So there's an impact, obviously, on direct victims, but that's a good one to illustrate that broader political impact that that type of an apology can have. I think for me, I suppose sometimes apologies stand out for the wrong reasons. And I alluded earlier to that one that's in my head this morning, the INLA ceasefire on August 1998. And it was because, as I mentioned, it was that bit that was added on the at the end that said we have however nothing to apologize for in taking the war to the British and their loyalist henchmen and I think just as we've been thinking through these issues about choice of language and timing and context and so forth that one stands out in my mind as one which in hindsight I think 
that bit at the end could have been left out. Thank you both for that. It sounds like a really fascinating project. I'm sure we're only scratching the surface today so we can put the link to the project website in the show notes so that our listeners can access more information and and see some of your outputs. Coming on to the final question then, could you tell us about the relationship between apologies and other forms of transitional justice? Sure, I'll take a first run at that one, Lauren. I think it's important for us, as I said earlier, we are apologies nerds, so we're fascinated by them, but we don't want to be over-egging the pudding either. Apologies are generally part of other processes. So saying sorry on its own often isn't enough to um, address hurt. So it's better if it's linked to other aspects of transitional justice. And in particular, it's linked in some instances to prosecutions, to justice. In some other instances, it's part of a truth recovery process or indeed uh, as part of reparations or, or memorialization. So to give you an illustration, when we were doing a piece of work for the United Nations, we tracked the ways in which apologies were part of court judgments. So a, a court requiring as part of a guilty finding against the state for past abuses an apology and actually interest. So there are a number of these in the ICTY, the tribunal that dealt with atrocities that happened in the former Yugoslavia, where some of the high profile people who were being charged with war crimes and so forth issued apologies. Some of these were received as, as more genuine than others. Interestingly, in the inter-American system, there is quite a back now probably about 20 years of judgments which have come through where the court itself takes on a very interventionist role in dictating how the apology should be crafted, the context in which it should be delivered, the words to be used, and indeed the other things to come along with it, so it's such as compensation or reparation. So for example, there's a number of judgments against states, I think there's one in my head about Ecuador, where for environmental crimes against indigenous peoples, the Inter-American Court has required apologies to be delivered in indigenous languages, but also inside, deep in the jungle itself, where, where the, the affected village are. So courts taking, a, in the inter-American system at least, courts taking a very interventionist hands-on role in the role to be played by the apologies. We've talked already about the relationship between apologies and truth recovery. And one of the issues around that is that, I think for me at least, I think if you're going to have apologies, generally it should be sequenced so that it comes after truth recovery. So e.g. the Bloody Sunday example. So you've had the big public inquiry and then you have the apology. I, I, I always think in this question about uh, Geraldine Fanukin, the wife of the murdered um, solicitor, Pat Fanukin, who was m- murdered through collusive acts of several British state agencies. And so it's been an ongoing pressure for the families to have a public inquiry into that. And there's been significant resistance to that within the British state system and different other ways of looking at it. And in one of these, there was a non-public inquiry, basically a review of the papers by Desmond De Silva. As a result of that review of the papers, David Cameron made a public apology for this. But uh, Mrs Fanukin's response to that was, well, how can you apologise when you haven't told us the full truth about what happened? And so an apology in that case can't be used as a way of getting around full disclosure, if you like, full apologies. And then apologies, as I say, can be part of reparations packages. So they can be, sometimes they're referred to in the literature as symbolic reparations, whereby in addition to, for example, forms of uh, compensation to affected or victimised individuals or communities, you may have a memorialization. you know, memorials constructed or different forms of public art or all kinds of ways around that and that might also be sequenced with some kind of an apology and acknowledgement of the culpability of the state or non-state actors who are involved. So apologies are part and parcel of the transitional justice package but again 
generally, they don't operate as effectively if they're on their own. They need to be linked to other processes. I think that comprehensively covers the key issues. I mean, as you said, victims have differing needs. For some people, an apology is adequate. For most people, they would say an apology on its own is not enough. And it needs to be linked, as you've said, to other forms of truth recovery and justice. And indeed, I think there's quite rightly an element of nervousness on the part of many victims who would be fearful of the prospect of an apology being used to close down truth recovery or to obfuscate. And so I think it does certainly need to be linked to a much broader package. I mean, de Graff has talked about apologies as peacemaking, this symbolic break with the past, and it can be quite powerful. So that speaks to those couple of lines in the Stormont House Agreement, which anticipated statements of acknowledgement on the part of key protagonists. And you could picking up on Kieran's point about sequencing, see how, if carefully planned, that could be part of a very important and powerful symbolic break with the past and dealing with the past. But I think if we're to keep our focus on victims and their needs, certainly apologies need to be part of a much more comprehensive package in terms of uh, dealing with the past. That's great, Anna and Kieran. Thank you. You have been listening to LawPod, an informed take on current events, brought to you by the law students and staff at Queen's University Belfast. LawPod is funded by the Queen's University Law School. Thanks to Anna Bryson and Kieran McAvoy. Please follow us on Twitter at QUB LawPod. For more information, you can also visit our website, lawpod.org, and please have a look in the show notes for more information about the topic covered today. You can find us on iTunes, Spotify, or anywhere else you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. I am Lauren Dempster. This was LawPod.